0: Hello and welcome to the On Podcast. It's Wednesday. September the 21st, and this is Richard Pater, the Executive Director of BICOM. Today I'm joined by Mark Regev. Mark, I'm sure, needs no introduction for many of our listeners, but for those of you unaware, Ambassador Mark Regev is the former Israeli ambassador to the UK. He's also served close to a decade as the Prime Minister's international spokesman and media advisor, interestingly beginning his uh, service under Prime Minister Olmert, though for the majority of that tenure serving under Prime Minister Netanyahu. Before that, he was a career diplomat, serving in such places as Washington, China, and in Jordan. Today, Mark is the head of the Abba Eban Institute for International Diplomacy, which is part of the Reichen University's Lauda School of Government. Mark, thank you very much indeed for joining me. My pleasure. And thank you very much for welcoming me into your home as well. A double pleasure. Um, If we can start on kind of on UK-related issues, as ambassador, you're one of the few Israelis who have actually met the Queen. Could you tell us about that experience?
1: I think I actually have a place in history because I might be the last Israeli who met the Queen. Because obviously when I left coronavirus had broken out, and I, I think my, my successor, Ambassador Khotabeli, uh, she had to present her credentials to the, to the Queen on Zoom. Hmm. So I might be the last Israeli who actually had a me- physical meeting with the Queen. Um, what can one say? Her passing is the end of an era and I understand uh, this sadness felt in Britain and the respect they want to pay her. Um, when I met her, and I met her after the presenting of Credentials, it was twice a year. They had the, the garden party in the summer and they had the Christmas party in December. I was always impressed by her stamina and her commitment to the role. I mean, here was a woman, she was already, when I was there, over 90. And there'd be... 180 ambassadors with their partners all lined up in a queue and she'd walk past all of them and say something appropriate and shake hands and doing it, you didn't see for a moment that she was tired or bored, she was totally committed to her job and I think that made her, that, that gave her stature, that made her, and I think everyone understood that she was doing it because she thought that is her duty.
0: I wanted to ask you, you know, on from that, as a foreign diplomat uh, assigned to the UK, what was your impression about the influence of the royals on the political discourse and, uh, and any other engagement you had with any of the
1: other royals? Well, obviously, like the Israeli president, the British royals are ceremonial uh, and they don't have uh, political power in an executive sense. They don't control government budgets. They don't uh, 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 control foreign policy. They don't, um, they don't control defence policy. They obviously have a certain amount of influence behind the scenes. There's obviously the weekly meeting between the prime minister and the monarch, uh, w- which I've heard from former prime ministers, whether it was Cameron spoke about it, Tony Blair spoke about it, how that, that, that can be an important meeting for the prime minister. But if they have any power, it's, it's behind the scenes. Uh, I'll give you an example. It, it, uh, Israelis were talking about, on, on Elizabeth II's passing, they were talking about, well, she never visited us. But you have to explain to Israelis, well, that's actually not her decision. The monarch does not make an official visit without the approval of the government and the bureaucracy. And, and we both know that the, she never went anywhere without a rubber stamp first from the, from the Foreign Office. And for years, uh, uh, that was the decision, that it wasn't the right time to visit Israel. A uh, pity in many ways, because she was a, a, a believing Christian, and I've got no doubt that she would have thoroughly uh, enjoyed visiting Jerusalem, uh, Nazareth, the Sea of Galilee areas, um, but it couldn't happen because it, uh, of all sorts of political decisions taken in London. Uh, it was interesting, during my term as ambassador, of course we had the first royal visit when, uh, when Prince William came, after that uh, 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 Prince Charles then came for the 2020 uh, uh, Yad Vashem ceremony to, to mark the 75th, year, 75th anniversary of the liberation of, of the Auschwitz death camp. Um, I don't know how quickly we'll actually have a monarch here. I hope soon. We'll see. Um, your
0: comments about the the kind of the, the blockage of the foreign ministry was a point made by Lord Pollock in the House of Lords, um, and I can concur. It's a shame that the uh, the Queen never got to uh, to visit and experience that, and obviously with with her wider family connection to Jerusalem as well. I mean, you mentioned uh, Prince when he was Prince Charles um, visit visited just a couple of years ago. I remember also meeting him very briefly at the uh, with the, with the ambassador. Um, what were your thoughts kind of on the, with the new, with the new king and his? relationship Relationship towards
1: Israel, I think he's, once again, he's not a, a policy maker, yes, he's a ceremonial monarch. But I always felt that he was favorably disposed towards uh, the Jewish people and the Jewish state. And I can give three uh, very brief examples. Uh, I remember on the um, anniversary, on the 70th anniversary of the creation of the State of Israel, uh, the Jewish community in London, in Britain, organized a special event, a celebratory event at the Great Albert Hall and they invited Prince Charles to come, and he came. Now he could have found an excuse, he could have been in Scotland, he could have been busy, but he he accepted the invitation and he came. And this was an event obviously hosted by British Jews, but to celebrate Israel. He didn't have to be there, he was there. The second event that sticks out in my mind, I think it was 2018, when in the middle of the the anti-Semitism crisis in the Labour Party, and, and every day we were having headlines about uh in the newspapers in britain about anti-semitism this anti-semitism that uh the jewish community feeling a certain amount of uh, insecurity feeling uh, uh an anxiety where well, they thought in britain you know this this anti-semitism was supposed to happen in 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 eastern europe it wasn't supposed to happen in britain yes and i remember charles hosted at the palace an event uh, uh that that didn't deal directly because the monarchs obviously the monarchy is above politics but he did a special event uh, to show appreciation for the contribution of British Jews to British society, to British education, to the British economy, to British uh, 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 culture. And he had uh, the entire leadership of the Jewish community there, and it was a lovely event. And it was all designed just to say, we appreciate your presence as British Jews. And I think it was the palace's way of saying, we don't like some, what's going on. But mm. of course, it was done in a very royal way. Yes, But he didn't have to do that either, and he did that. And finally, I, I think his remarks... When Rabbi Lord Sachs passed away, uh, where he talked about my rabbi, I think that showed a, an, an affiliation, uh, uh, um, a solidarity that once again is, is not automatic. Now, of course, none of this will affect British government policy. That is, that is decided somewhere else. But it's at least nice to know that the monarchy is favourably disposed.
0: Absolutely. Um, so if we can turn now actually to um, the British uh, political echelon and the new prime minister, Liz Truss. Um, she made some amazing comments during her um, election campaign, one of which was uh, the consideration of moving uh, the British embassy to Jerusalem. Um, what
1: did you make of that comment? Do you think that's realistic? Well, that she'll consider it, yes. <laughs> I think that's, uh, it's good that she's considering it. How quickly it will happen, we'll have to wait and see. But there's no doubt that she is uh, fatally disposed towards Israel, and that's very important. In the past, we've had uh, prime ministers in Britain who've been great friends of Israel. Harold Wilson was a great friend of Israel. Uh, um, um, I think Tony Blair and Gordon Brown were great friends of Israel. Uh, 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 Boris, uh, a great friend of Israel. We can go back to Lloyd George and the, and the Balfour Declaration, if you like. But, but, but it's nice to know for Israel. I mean, Israel faces... Uh, uh, hostility in some international quarters, and it's nice to know that in Downing Street, there is a friend of Israel. Absolutely.
0: Um, perhaps we can dwell on perhaps the most serious foreign policy issue that Israel faces, and that's the, the Iranian threat. Um, again, we heard some kind of some supportive rhetoric from from the Prime Minister Truss um, about support, supporting Israel and uh, against Iran. But beyond that rhetoric, what do you think is the most realistic expectation that we can expect from the UK government as we see the, uh, the nuclear negotiations? Well, they're,
1: they're obviously part of the, the the P5. And uh, they have, of course, a very close relationship with Washington. And, and we hope that they are cautious and they're careful what they do. I mean, we had a reminder earlier this week, the Iranian president gives an interview to CBS in America, just as part of him being there, coming there for the United Nations General Assembly. And he, he's asked about the Holocaust and he's not sure it happened, right? He's once again, this is a pattern of Iranian behavior. Now, maybe that's only a symbolic issue but it's expressive of the mindset of the Iranian leadership. What he said about the Holocaust, he could be arrested in some European countries for saying that Holocaust denial is a crime. And this is now the leader of a country reiterating what, what has been said by Iranian leaders for the last couple of years. This, I think, it exposes the mindset of the Iranian leadership and it should it cause everyone in the international community to wake up. These people are dangerous. And, and, and the idea that they would ever get their hands on a nuclear trigger, that has to worry not just Israel, that has to worry everybody.
0: And if you were in your previous role um, as, as ambassador and, and you were there to kind of to, to push Israel's argument, what would be the, the pressure points or the, the points of leverage that you would be looking for the Brits to be pushing within the context of the, uh, of the P5?
1: So uh, I'd urge them to be very, very cautious with the Iranians because it's clear... I think to anyone, that the Iranians haven't given up on their plan for the bomb. What they may be trying to get in a deal is, is some sort of tep- temporary postponement uh, that will uh, keep their nuclear program in, 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 in place, and that they can press a button and get it all going again very quickly at a time of their choosing in the future. And, and I think the right thing to do is to have an, a deal where the Iranians don't have a nuclear option, where the nuclear program is actually dismantled. Uh, if that's doable or not, I don't know. But that has to be the goal, because if the Iranians have just got a, a, an option that they can use whenever it's good for them, and they will decide when they have a bomb. So they can say now for, to get money from the international community and so forth. Yeah. They can say, okay, we put it on hold for a short period of time. But is that good enough? Should they be getting relief to put the program just on hold for a, a breather so they can get some money? We're also worried. We just had a, a, an international conference on terrorism at the, at the Reichman University, and unfortunately, the, the British delegation, uh, because the same people who are dealing with counter-terrorism mm. were dealing with the, um, with, with the details and the protection of all the officials at the, uh, at the funeral of uh, Queen Elizabeth. And so the British had to cancel at the last minute. But at that conference, it was said very clearly, if a deal is signed, yes, uh, automatically uh, international funds flow to Tehran. And that will immediately affect their ability to fund terrorism. They're not going to spend that money on schools and hospitals in Tehran. The bulk of it will be spent on Hezbollah and Hamas and Islamic Jihad and the Houthis in Yemen. And we should be worried that they'll have more assets available to continue their nefarious activities.
0: And just kind of with a view, I mean, obviously Israel's not part of the negotiations, but what's your, what's your assessment of the, of the talks that are happening in Vienna in that process? How do you see
1: that playing out? Well, it looks like there's not going to be a deal now in the, in the short term, but that doesn't help you if you get a deal in December or January, correct? Um, uh, so we're concerned. But I, I'd remind you that at the conference, as I said the one last week at Reich when the head of the Mossad said, deal or no deal, we will continue to act against the program the Iranian nuclear program, because for us that's a, a central national issue and we won't be bound by any arrangements that other countries make with Iran.
0: Um, changing tack but staying on the region, last week we saw the, uh, the second anniversary of the Abraham Accords. Um, one question I've asked to some, uh, some, some British officials, and I'd love to, to hear your thoughts. Where is the, the value added that the, the, the UK government could add to that relationship in the context of the Abraham Accords? Um,
1: first of all, there's our bilateral relations with the Gulf, which are very important. And as you can see, in all sorts of areas, we see us cooperating with both Bahrain and the, and the Emirates. But what we're doing at the Abay Abed Institute, which I'm now heading at, at the university, is uh, can we use this also as a vehicle for uh, trilateral cooperation? So the idea of having a discussion, which the Americans have initiated, Gulf, Israel, India, a triangle. Gulf, Israel, South Korea. Gulf, Israel, Japan. In other words, a lot of people are dealing with the bilaterals, which is very important, but to what extent can we create something more than the bilaterals? To what extent can we talk about regional cooperation, trilateral cooperation, because that's beneficial for, for us all. And that's what we're focusing at. We've done a conference already at, at the Reichmann Institute, at the Abebe Institute at Reichmann University, I'm sorry, about, um, about Japan, Emirates-Israel, and we're going to have a second conference at the beginning of next year. These sort of areas where we talk about, once again, how can trilateral cooperation, first of all, enhance the bilateral cooperation, but also in itself take off? Because obviously the, uh, Japan has good relations with Israel and good relations with the Gulf. When you put that all together, do you get more than one plus one, two, you get one plus one is three.
0: Oh, so on a similar vein, kind of where do you think is, is there scope to do that with the Brits as well? And what are the areas that you think that uh, that, that trilateral relationship should be prioritising?
1: So I'm sure there's scope to do it with the Brits. We've got a very strong trade relationship with the Brits. And we know that the, uh, uh, London has very, very close ties with these Gulf countries. And and there's no doubt that there's room for uh, uh, trilateral cooperation, uh, whether it's in in green energy or whether it's in maritime transportation, maybe we should sit and talk about what issues do you think will be the most interesting for us to try to pursue where there's a common interest between all sides?
0: Fantastic. Well, for our listeners, we will uh, we'll follow up on that and we'll keep you, uh, keep you updated. Um, another issue, which obviously is, is kind of a permanent uh, agenda item, is Israel's relationship with the Palestinians. Do you think also in the context of the, the UK role that they have anything to contribute in that area?
1: Well, I mean, anyone that can help us uh, with peace is, 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 is good, though we've got to make sure that a, a desire for peace uh, uh, doesn't backfire. I'll give you an example. I was reading in the Jerusalem Post this morning. Apparently, the Irish foreign minister said, unless there's movement on the peace process, Ireland will unilaterally recognise a Palestinian state. What does that actually mean? It means that Ireland... Gives an incentive to the Palestinians not to move forward on peace because the way to not get, uh, they'll get recognition for a state if there's no movement. And I, I think it's, I'd like to see Britain, I mean, no longer part of the EU, but still a force to be said, especially in a country like Ireland, to, to put its weight on the table that this sort of behavior is actually not going to do anything to help support peace between Israelis and Palestinians.
0: Mm. Um, just on the back on the Abraham Accords and Israel's regional role, just what's i interested to hear your assessment of kind of the expansion of the, uh, of the relationship and whether you see that any other countries joining
1: the, uh, the kind of
0: the normalization with Israel anytime soon.
1: So it's clear it's going to happen. And, uh, just can we give a clear timetable? Uh, I'm not sure I can at the moment. Yes, the most important thing, maybe at the moment, is to concentrate to show everyone the benefits. That other Arab countries, other Muslim countries see the benefits that the Gulf is getting from their relationship with Israel and I think that's what we can do to strengthen the circle. There was a while ago when we were more confident maybe that uh, uh, that we'd have an agreement with a third and a fourth and a fifth country very quickly but unfortunately it looks like that's not going to happen. The situation doesn't seem to be conducive. More and more Arab countries have these under the table relationships like we had with both the Emirates and Bahrain but their ability to move up ahead, at the moment, it looks like uh, it's not happening, but it could happen soon. Mm. You just need a breakthrough.
0: It was, it was four years ago when uh, former Prime Minister Netanyahu, when he was in the post, um, travelled to Oman to meet right. with the, the Sultan. I don't know if you were part of that trip. I was only um, in London. Ah, so that's uh, but, a personal but, but uh, no, nice time. I, but, uh, I
1: used to be in the office and I saw a lot of mm. his communication with, with leaders across the Gulf. Not just the two Abraham Accords partners, but others. We have good relations across the Gulf. Ultimately, the Abraham Accords, if I can be conceptual for a moment, if you'll allow me, sure. is based on two things. It's based on, first of all, this convergence of interests between us and the Gulf, that we, we have an affinity of the way we see the common threats to the region, the common threats to security, to prosperity, to stability in the region. So that's one part of the Abraham Accords. The other part of the Abraham Accords is a, an Arab uh, disappointment with some of their traditional partners, that they weren't sure of security guarantees that they were given in the past, especially when people in Washington kept talking about a pivot to Asia, so the assumption is the traditional uh, friendships in the Middle East are less so, uh, all sorts of issues. And Israel is part of the Middle East. We're not gonna become neo isolationist and turn away from the problems of the Middle East. We're here, and uh, we're strong. No one wants a weak ally. And on the basis of the common interests, which, which are stronger than ever, and on the basis that we are not going to suddenly turn our back on the region because we're part of the region, uh, that's, that's a good basis to move forward with the Arab countries.
0: Sounds great. Um, just a question kind of relating to, to this week's events. We see that uh, Prime Minister Lapid is in New York for the, uh, for the UN General Assembly. As someone who's attended those events in the past, how much importance do you place on these set piece events?
1: So, as you say correctly, I I accompanied the Prime Minister on a number of times when he did these visits. There are two things, basically, that you have in these visits. First of all, there are all the meetings you have on the side. And so far, I've been following the papers. So, the Israeli Prime Minister has met the the President of Turkey, and he's met the King of Jordan, and other meetings as well. I think there's a meeting with Liz Truss. Yeah. Yeah. And so... That's important, because when you get all these world leaders together in the same building, you can do a lot of work, a lot of serious work, and the Prime Minister's got a team of people with him who are briefing him and making sure that he's up to date for every meeting, and so you get a lot, of work, a lot done. The other thing is the speech, uh, which will be tomorrow, um, which is his chance to present Israel's vision, Israel's ideas to the international community. There's uh, no audience that's more important than the UN General Assembly. And uh, the speech is always an opportunity uh, to make people think, to challenge maybe some of the general conceptions uh, that many people have. And people don't know Lupita internationally, right? Uh, they might have heard the name, but they don't know him. This is his chance to introduce himself to the global community and how he sees Israel's future. I, I, if I was writing his speech, I didn't know <laughs> what he'll do, yes? But I, I'd say you'd have to mention what we spoke about before, about the Iran being led by a, a president who who's a Holocaust denier, yes, because not that, once again, that may be important for Jews, but that is emblematic of the mindset of the regime. So I, I'd, I would put that in a speech. I'd also say it's crucial always to say Israel wants peace with all our neighbours, including the Palestinians. But I don't think it's counter... I think it's counterproductive if you say, well, that's easy to do. It's not easy to do. If it was easy to do, we would have already done it. And part of the problematic uh, thing is the Palestinian leadership. And if we, we talk about Raisi's comments to CBS, well, it was just, well, when was Abu Mazen, uh, President Mahmoud Abbas, when was he in, in Berlin? And also talked about mm. the Holocaust in a way. I mean, uh, what does that do for Israeli confidence in, in Palestinians' desire for peace and reconciliation with us, right? When there's not even the most fundamental recognition of... Of what happened to the Jewish people in the 20th century, um, I mean, I understand that he's involved in his own people; that that's his first priority, is his own people. But his closest neighbor went through a terrible genocide—the Jewish people—in the 20th century, and he sort of I mean, it trivializes that. Uh, people have to understand: peace will require the Palestinian leadership to take tough choices and to deal with some of their ghosts, and. Uh, Abu Mazen's language in in that press conference in Berlin, uh, unfortunately, I think, shows that we have a, a, a peace partner, once again, it's not the first time, but shows that we have a peace partner on the Palestinian side who is problematic, very difficult.
0: Um, just one last question. I, the, in last week's episode, I was talking to uh, another former official in the prime minister's office, um, Ornam Mizrahi from the National Security Council, and we were discussing the maritime uh, border with Israel and Lebanon. Now it's moved on uh, a, a week or so, and the prospects seem to be uh, moving towards agreement. Are you confident that they're going to reach an agreement? And do you think there's a possible uh, ramifications for further understandings between Israel and Lebanon?
1: Look, there's no reason there shouldn't be an agreement. It's in our interest and it's in Lebanon's interest. It's even, I think, in many ways more important for Lebanon than it is for Israel, because the Lebanese economy is in freefall. Yes, the Lebanon has become a failed state. They can't pay basic salaries. Lebanon is going through a huge economic and financial crisis. So the potential to receive some income from this offshore gas for Lebanon is much more important than it is for Israel, sure. because we are a successful economy. Having said that, I have to inject a word of caution. Uh, We know that Hezbollah has veto power over every decision made by the Lebanese government. And uh, the people who are optimistic that this can be done are basing their assumption on that Hezbollah is not going to oppose it, is not going to torpedo this process, even though it's so obviously in the Lebanese interest. Is it in Hezbollah's interest? So people think that Hezbollah will let this go, but we can't be totally sure until it happens. If Hezbollah has an agenda which is not a a Lebanese agenda but it's an Iranian agenda and they want to cause problems and they want to escalate they could use this as an excuse I hope it doesn't happen
0: Absolutely, well um, for our listeners first of all thank you very much indeed Mark and uh, we will keep you posted on those uh, developments certainly as we keep a careful eye on all of the issues that we've discussed today, but thank you Thank you, Baikom.